0: Okay, if you've got a Bible, could you please turn with me to Exodus and chapter 15. We're uh, working our way through uh, a series on the life of Moses. Then Moses uh, made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went uh, into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute, a rule, and there, he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put onto the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by uh, the water. Uh, in chapter 14, if you're reading through uh, the book of Exodus, you'll find that the people across uh, the Red Sea uh, still stands as one of the greatest miracles that you will ever uh, read uh, in your, your Bible and uh, I would imagine would have been something to have seen. By the time you get to chapter 15, uh, they've gone through the Red Sea, they've been delivered uh, from the hand of the Egyptians, and there is one huge praise party going uh, by, by the side of the Red Sea. The, the folk have gathered, they're singing God's praises, they're declaring Him To be great, it is a party atmosphere. But now, just three days after that incredible uh, and massive event, everything has changed. They have moved from the mountaintop into the valley in just 72 hours. The children. Of Israel are in uh, the wilderness which is called Shur, and they make their way to uh, a bitter oasis called Mara, where it says here, and the Lord tested them, or their faith would be tested. I want to remind you of just a, a few things before we get into the passage. The rest of the book of Exodus from this point on will relate to the major events in about a year of the wanderings um, of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And what you're going to find as you go through the book of Exodus, maybe you want to read it just for reading's sake, is that you will find that there is a pattern that repeats itself. It repeats itself both now And it repeats itself after the Mount Sinai experience. I'll try and explain something uh, like a a bit about that pattern as we we get on. On the way to the the mountain, uh, four crises occur. The first crisis is what we're going to look at this morning. There was a lack of drinking water. Then there was a shortage of food. Then we come a bit later on to another lack of water. And then there's a tribe, a wild desert tribe called the Amalek, and they attack them. And in particular, these trials seem to also follow the patterns or the way of thinking that the people of Israel get themselves into. Here's the the first part of the pattern. The children of Israel have been called out of Egypt to the promised land. And Moses was saying to them, hey guys, this will be a journey. We're going on a journey here. You won't be there yet. It's like sort of sitting with the children in the back of the car when you drive out the drive and they think they're on holiday when you've gone round the corner. This is exactly the sort of thing that we're getting with the children of Israel. They want to be there now. They, don't want, they, they want to be in the promised land without the journeying bit. That's quite familiar, isn't it? Most of us want to be in the promised land without the hard work that comes to get into uh, the promised land. They want to go through the easy, no hassle route. And the simple reason that they didn't do that is that God wants to prepare them to be the people of God that journeying is part of our experience of being a Christian. We have to journey to get to our promised land so that we can be what God called us to be. And they just said, we don't want to do this journeying bit. The second part of the pattern is that when they run into a need, they respond to it by murmuring or groaning, whatever you'd like to call it. You know, they whinged. Soon as there was a need, whinge. No water, whinge. No food, whinge. No, no water again, whinge. When the Amalek, Amalek people come and attack them, whinge. That was just basically how they were. It was sort of, all oh, the Amaleks are coming. These people don't like us. That sort of stuff. And that was their pattern. So first pattern, don't want a journey. Second pattern, whinge soon as there's something up we whinge third pattern is that they push god they push him time and time again when moses has to deal with them he says to them will you not listen to the lord sometimes he actually says to god what will you what do you think that i should do with these people He he doesn't really know. Sometimes he's struggling to know what to do with the attitudes and the way that the people respond to them. And they are pushing God all the time. We don't like this. We think you're wrong, God. This is this is a wrong plan. What do you think you're doing? We're we're sort of angry with you, and you and and they're angry with Moses. Then what happens is that they repent. They realize their mistakes. They uh, repent. We're sorry that we are like this. We, we, you know, we can see now that we're like this. We're so sorry. What, what miserable people we are. We, we've learned from our mistakes. Fourth pattern or the last pattern is that Moses intercedes on God for these miserable people And they get their deliverance, whatever the form of that deliverance may be. So we go through this pattern. Now, I want to suggest to you one thing. First thing is this doesn't that sound so familiar to me? Or you? This is me and you, folks. This is me and you. I don't want a journey. I want it now. And I want it this way. And if I don't get it this way, I'll grumble. And by the way, God, I know that this way is right. You're wrong. And then I have some sort of revelation because Dave Simkins prophesies. Oh, yes, so right. And I repent. The Lord delivers me. Let me just say to you, the product of that pattern was 40 years in the desert. You and I have not got 40 years to learn this lesson. We need to be learning this lesson quite quickly. So let me ask you this question. If you are in that pattern, and that's the way that your Christian life functions, please, for your own sake and for God's, let's break the pattern. We're going to look at how you break the pattern a little bit later on. It seems that God has made it abundantly clear And demonstrated that he is going to be a supernatural God. He's going to do this supernaturally. He has supernaturally taken them out of Egypt. He supernaturally allowed them to cross a a vast expanse of water. And he was going to supernaturally provide for them in the wilderness. That was the deal. The deal is... I'm supernatural, you can trust me. And I think we need to hear that, folks. I think we need to hear that. I am supernatural, you can trust me. I can do supernatural things. You can trust me with that. I can break through. And we need to put our expectations in line with who he thinks that he is. But they don't want a supernatural God, which is Barmiru. They've just crossed, they've just come out of Egypt through the Red Sea and they want a different God. Even after what they've experienced. They have a different view of God and a different view of what Moses should do. I don't know whether you've learned this lesson yet, but I mean, I'm st- still coming to terms with it, I would admit. That, I've, that God does not conform to me. That I should conform to him. So I look at his Bible and I've got to think, the Bible is there for me to do every word. If he speaks prophetically, I should respond to it. That actually, the, it's quite simple really. I do what he says without arguing. That is the essence of lordship. When I became a Christian, I, did I not agree to follow him and do everything that he said? And yet, that thing seems to be the basic lesson that you and I, the people of Israel, struggle with. That we have not just been conformed to be to be sort of Christians where we sort of, well, we, 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 sort of, well we, we just changed a little bit. No, not at all. No, I've come under his lordship, which means now that I do everything that he asks me to do. Whether I like it or not. Whether I like it or that's the deal. That's the deal of eternal life. I do what you say. I don't do what I say. I think I do what you want. That's lordship. this is the struggle that the children of Israel were going through. And here comes part of that lordship. When they came out of Egypt, they go across the sea and they go straight into the wilderness. And what we know is that they don't like the wilderness. We don't like the wilderness. I don't know what they thought. That they, they thought that, that that what Moses would do is that bring them out, sort of tugging Debenhams and Nando's behind him, <laughs> just so that they could have all the clothes that they needed and Sainsbury's to be added to that. pulley that just pop next door, you know. That sort of no. This was a deal that included the wilderness, and I don't know whether you've noticed that actually one of the major themes in the Bible is the desert and the wilderness. Wherever you go, whether it's the Psalms or whatever that you'd like to go to, you come across the wilderness and the desert. And I want to suggest to you something. Therefore, you and I can expect that a major theme in you and my life will be the wilderness. Oh, I didn't want to be that sort of conforming to that sort of lordship. But actually, that's true. That is true. That we come out and we enter into sometimes the wilderness. And people think, I didn't sign up for that. you did. You did. You signed up for the wilderness, folks. If no preacher has had the courage to say it, let me say it. And then I'll run. You signed up for the wilderness when you became a Christian. This is true. How do I know that? Because here's the illustration. The illustration is that they are going to their promised land. Where is your promised land? Heaven. Okay. Heaven is your promised land. Therefore, to get to heaven, what do you have to go through? We have to go to the wilderness. See, it's true, isn't it? We've got to go through the wilderness. It is just barmy, but it's true. And here's the first thing that we need to get in our mind. I have been called of God to be a Christian in the wilderness. Settle it in your heart. Settle it in your future, your thinking. This is part of our package. But having said that... What is extraordinary is that what matters is their response in the wilderness. Because what God could prove was this, that he could do mighty miracles in the wilderness. In the wilderness. You don't have to be out of the wilderness in a Reinhardt Bunky meeting to experience a miracle. You don't have to be in the context of some sort of massive conference where there is a great worship and a Pentecostal preacher so that you can respond to it. You can experience God in the wilderness. That's the deal. Wilderness, supernatural God. That's the deal. That's how we were brought up, folks. That's what God called us to do. I want you to to know this. Why is that so important? Because this is so great when it happens in the wilderness. It's not so great in this meeting. It's just in the meeting. When you experience experience God in the wilderness, it is something extraordinary. So God will do miracles into the wilderness. But also, he wants to make them into a great nation. How do you make a great nation? Well, you have good economy, that's important. Excellent football team to win the World Cup. Don't mention the wolves. <laughs> Just <laughs> don't mention the wolves. <laughs> Last year, mention the wolves. This year? No mention of the wolves. But it's great economy. That's important. Those sort of things. Great football team. What went in? Magnificent city centre. What does God say about how to develop a great nation under God? He says, wilderness. Wilderness. He says, That actually, I'm going to chuck you 40 years through here so that by the time you get to the other end of it, you will know what it is to be a great nation. I will take you through dry and waterless places and you will become a great nation. And I wonder whether there are some of you in your Christian life that maybe this is what you felt like. I just want to say, it's normal and it's okay. I wonder whether you thought this, I've been redeemed from my sins, I've been spared condemnation, I know that he loves me, I know that he has a place in heaven for me, I know that my uh, my, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but actually I'm in a dry, waterless wilderness. And you think this question, is God judging me or has something gone wrong? Firstly, new covenant, God can't judge you. The answer to that is no. He's not judging you. You've done nothing wrong whatsoever. You are not out of favour. It's just simply this, that part of our progression in being a Christian is that we walk through the wilderness. We walk through the wilderness. It is something normal. But I want to just repeat something that I've said before. That he wants to bear down you bear down upon you in your wilderness experience so that two things might happen. One, his supernatural power might be very clear, but also so that he can bring grace to you and display his glory through you what do i mean by that it's just that everything is so much spectacular when god comes in the wilderness everything just is the other side of it is that you learn to trust god this way do you know this is true i've been to every stonely a good amount of of good amount of uh, downs, intense. I've been to every Brighton conference, and now you're going to have to edit this. Those things do not teach you about trusting God. No, not ever. And if you think you're going to go and learn about trusting God, you're just going to have a, a way up. Great time, loads of people little bit of heaven on earth. That's what those those are about. You may learn something new, but you won't learn about practically trusting God. You won't learn about the dependency on God. You won't learn about what it's like in the workplace, the home place, to be a parent, to be a father, a husband, to be at work when it's good and bad and all that sort of stuff. You won't learn it there. You'll learn the principle, you won't learn about trusting God. You just won't. Because that's what the wilderness teaches you. The wilderness teaches you to trust in God. The trouble is that I would like to suggest that this is the most difficult thing that we have to learn. Trusting in the wilderness is the success and failure of us all. This is what makes churches, breaks churches, causes empty seats, but actually is our reality. The reality. Because what it means is this. It means that in the wilderness, in the desert, I'm going to have utter dependence on the provision of God. And there's nowhere else that I can go for his help. And that's the idea of the desert, you see. There's, n- there's no well. <laughs> there's no Sainsbury's, Debenhams and Nando's. There just isn't. You've only got one thing that you can do, and that is ask God. And then he comes. And then you learn about what it means to trust in God. But what do you think about? It? Well, the trouble is with all this, Nigel, is that you don't know really all of what i am feeling right now well no i don't i only know what i felt but i do know this that god knows what you are feeling because 1 corinthians 10 verse 13 says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape." So that you may be able to endure it. That he is there for you. I just believe that trusting God in the wilderness means bold, active faith in God's word and God's provision. It means accepting him as good and wise even though that I'm in the desert. It means believing that he can sort it out even though that I'm in the desert. It means, let me say that again. I am accepting his providence as good and wise even when I can't sort it out. So the Lord puts his people to the test in the wilderness and Israel did not want to live like this. It's just true, folks. Being in the wilderness is just... It just don't do you any good, really, sometimes that's the truth of it but that's what you and i think but god if you agree with this with me that god says that he knows best for us then putting us in the wilderness is not the wrong place for us it actually is the right place for us because he's trying to teach us something about where we should be in the future Okay, I know I've milked this a little bit, but let's go at the, look at the difficulty. Let's go on a little bit and make it a little bit worse. The difficulty, verse 22 and verse 23. Israel finds itself in real difficulty. I don't want to underemphasize or ignore that or downplay their corporate dis- difficulty. <coughs> Israel was, in, was facing something not just individual, it was corporate. So it was a corporate difficulty. I want to say that there's a a principle for this, that actually, here we go again, that the corporate principle is that you and I, so that we can become Christ-like, need to face difficulty and come through the other side. Let me ask you this question. What is your difficulty at the moment, Nigel? What is mine? What is yours? What is your difficulty? The reason that that is in front of you is that God wants to make you more and conform you more into the likeness of his son so that he can use you more. That difficulty is not a problem. It is an obstacle so that you can go through it, so that you can display his glory and you can become more like his son. That's why John 16 verse 33 said, Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that you may have what? Peace. Here he comes. This is how peace comes. In this world you will have trouble. That's how peace comes. Peace comes with an understanding of that and therefore a godly determination in the word of God and through prayer in the context of the church to come through that the other side. That's exactly it. And we need as a church to face this. In fact, we will need to face this with each other because sometimes some of us are not going to be going through difficulties but some of us will be going through huge difficulties and that's where the church needs to come together to help the person come through not just because we want them to come through but because we have a desire that the other person might come through to all that god wants for them so we help each other with the difficulty now, where am I going with this? Well, this section, verses 22 and 23, contains all, all the sort of the, the technical bits of the in, what you call the indications of the movements of the people of Israel. You might not want to go into this, but you can look at all the places like Shur, uh, Shur and Mara and Elim and all that sort of stuff. If you want to look at it in a greater detail, go to Numbers uh, 23. But there's some phrases that I want to look at um, that really strike you. And it's a really strange phrase in verse 22. If you look at the language, uh, the first few words, it says this, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And the passage might uh, literally be translated, Moses caused Israel to be set out. Why is that different? it actually demonstrates that Israel had a reluctance to leave the Red Sea, to leave it behind. He calls Israel to leave, and Israel says, Oh, no, we quite like it here. Thank you. We'd rather stay here. And that's because what had happened is, if you can imagine that they'd come through this great supernatural miracle, and then suddenly there's a praise party on the side of the Red Sea. And Moses is sort of saying to them, what I want you to do is that I want you to go that way. And they're all doing the stuff, you know, and all that sort of bit, the one leg one, the two hot one, the fall over one like I do. And there's clapping and there's eating and there's all that sort of stuff. And Moses is going, guys, we need to go that way. And they're looking over there and they're going, because, because here's a party and here is the wilderness. They think, you want me to go through that. And they don't want to go through that. They've got no intention in their heart. What is the theological, technical thing about this? Here it comes. This is the downside about worship. What does worship do? Worship sometimes allows you to forget the reality and spend some time in the presence of God. And he's wonderful. You can get transported into heaven. You can see angels and God speaks and prophecies and all that sort of stuff. And you think this is wonderful. And all the time that you're doing that, God is saying, look. And you go, no, I don't know that. No, not to. I want to stay here. Reason, reason. You and I know that as soon as we come down, we have to face that. So I'd rather stay here than face that. That was their problem and it's, it's, our, it's our problem, guys. Sometimes we have to come out of the presence of God, the wonderful thing, and we need to go charging into the wilderness. And without a church that does not, that if you have a church and it is just a worshipping people and it never moves out, we are not facing our realities. We're not living to where God called us to live. We're just living in this sort of bubble of sort of unreality, really. Great unreality, but unreality. God called us to work his purposes out there. There. That's why Moses was saying, come on, guys. I'm going, oh, no. You know, oh, it's good here. You know, that's a, come on. And that's the call for us, guys. The reality is Tesco's wherever we work wherever we've been called to work. The reality is, Mick, the bus station, that's where God has called us to do. That's where we work our stuff out. That's where where, where God wants us to demonstrate that he's a supernatural God. These things are great, but they're only part of the story. We we should dwell there, but then we've got to move out into the wilderness. That's the problem with people like me, because they're forever saying, okay, that's what, come on, guys. And you oh, go, No, do I don't gonna go there. And I know that because, you know, sometimes we can say as a church, can't we, and just please understand it, I'm not being negative or I'm not being critical. That's what happens when you sort of say, Okay guys, what we're all gonna do and I, and I get all excited about it, what we're gonna do is we're we gonna do this, and we're gonna do that, and we're gonna do that, and I'll go off like this and we think, yes, everybody up to Prince Agg, and I look behind me like they haven't come! Well, a lot of you did come, but no, no, they haven't come. Well, you do the same. You go, Why are prayer meetings, breast meetings in the church. And you get onto of prayer meeting. You open up Chester Street like this, and there's me and Dave sinking. He goes, they haven't come. Why? Because, because we sometimes need to realize that actually this is where we're called. we're called to go out from beyond this place. If we stay here and dwell here, we will never be what God called us to be would just be a worshipping sort of funny thing. But then they arrived at the the, the oasis. Imagine this. They arrive at the oasis and the springs are bitter. (coughs) Great conference, this one. They arrive there and the water's bitter. And here's the interesting thing. Because the water's bitter, it makes them bitter. Just one quick principle. Bitterness makes you bitter. Be careful of bitter people. Makes you bitter move on quick okay <laughs> they but the reality is this they wouldn't have had to be they wouldn't have been able to carry much water so the truth was that they they needed this water they'd been going for three days and then they arrive and they get to the well and it's undrinkable now, the bitterness in the water suggests all sorts of things. I'm going to ask you if you, are, if you really want to know about the, the, the real well to, to ask Peter Thompson because I sat in his front room and he told me stuff that I didn't know. So if you really want to know about this sermon, ask him. This is rubbish, okay? <laughs> this is what I put in my notes <laughs> before Peter told me that this was a load of rubbish. This is it. Look, <laughs> here it was. The water actually was very different in taste. It was very different in taste. It was very different in its construction to, to the water that they would have had in Egypt. This is where you need to talk to Peter because this is what all I got, Peter, um, that some people suggest that it may have had healing qualities in it, although it tasted bitter and therefore could have helped them. But what was interesting is that they didn't want to taste it. They didn't want to try it. We don't want to do that. It's different. We don't like it different. We like it the same. We want Egyptian water in the wilderness. Do you know that's the first sign of that? We want it. So here's some interesting things. Do you always sit in the same place? How grumpy would you be if this, if right now I asked you to move? whoa your well's bitter then. It is really interesting, isn't it, that change. <laughs> Let me ask you a question in regard to how God works with you. Actually, it sounds this sounds very awful, but if you've now got into what I called the Lloyd pew, you remember that we all sat in the Lloyd pew. If you've got into that sort of thinking, then your water is going to be bitter. I'm just not going to try it, and because you're not going to try it, it's going to make you bitter. D- difference. You know, you hear people say, come on, no, it, change is here to stay. <laughs> Here's the test. Where will you be next Sunday morning? Well, okay, put the glasses on. <laughs> but imagine the other side of this, that you are a mother in the wilderness. Imagine that you are a mother with a short, small baby, just like yours at the back there. Imagine that you have walked three days, Tim, with your little one. And I want you to imagine that you have got no water for your little one or anything to drink for three days. I want you to imagine that you've walked in temperatures of over 40 degrees, you've walked, and when you get to the place where you think that you are going to get to, that the water is not going to be what you think it, what you think it is for your child. And if you're a mom or a dad... That's a huge thing, isn't it, for them to... You think that I'm going to watch my children dehydrate and die in the middle of this. And expectation sometimes is a huge factor in our disappointments as Christians. Because the expectation was huge when it was on the side uh, of the, the Red Sea. But by now it has fallen. And sometimes the problem is not expectation in God. It's false expectation that we put on what we expect. So if false expectation comes into our thinking, then what happens is that we get wrong, we, we, what we experience is wrong, and we blame everybody else. And actually what the difficulty is, is the expectation was wrong. And that caused all sorts of problems, And if we're wrong with us if we're honest with ourselves, you know, sometimes we know that our expectation is wrong. We know that. And and yet we still sort of do it. Now the children of Israel sort of seem to get to this place and they think you think, oh, this is it, they're going to die now. But I wonder whether this sort of experience actually happens to you. I want to ask you this question Has God dealt with you tangibly? Yes, you answer. Has he helped you something that was rather remarkable? Yeah. Did you get through it? Yes. Did did God prove to you that he answered prayer? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Did you feel his presence when you were working through it? Yeah, it was extraordinary. Did you tell everybody about what was happening? Yes. And then suddenly did you find yourself in a place and you thought, how on earth did I get here? How on earth, it's almost as if I got through that and, and now I've now got this. What on earth is going on here? And the question for them and the question for us is how do I respond in the desert when the water is bitter? That's the, the question. So our last thing then, how did the children in Israel respond to the difficulty? How did they respond to it? Well, they responded to their difficulty full of faith and with outstanding character. (laughs) No, no they didn't. Their response was uh, faithless. They grumble. And admit it, if it was you or me, I'd have probably done worse. Probably what I wouldn't have done is that I wouldn't have grumbled outwardly. What I would have done is that I would have grumbled inwardly and grumbled outwardly to my wife. That would be I would grumble inwardly to me, outwardly to my wife. I might Even if I was going on a good expander, it gr- I would, it would grumble to my children. So that's how I would deal with it. But I want to be honest that many of us actually, even though we've gone through that, have been disappointed, haven't we, how we have responded to different things. I don't know if you've ever done that sometimes. You just think, why did I react like that? Why did I react like that? And I don't know whether these people would go into this, but I'm sure that uh, they, they probably would. But when we see what is called here a, a failure of faith, we need to just go back and see where they came from. Because they came from a position where they were in faith for everything. That actually, only in Exodus 15, they had, f- they had faith to believe that God would take them out of Egypt. And now faith... Is, is gone. It's just completely gone. Their belief has faltered. But I want to suggest something to you. I want to suggest to you that this type of thing is actually quite central to what the theologians call our sanctification. The reason that I want to do that is that, is that I want to suggest to you that, that God uses us, uses situations like this to help us to grow in faith. And sometimes my, I will be openly admit to you that sometimes my problem is that I will often grumble first. And actually, what God is trying to teach me is trying to teach me faith. And I will grumble first. And I will go there first. The opening verse of verse 24 betrays them because it says, so the people grumble to Moses. And that's not the last time that we're going to hear these phrases. They're going to do it all the way through for 40 years. They're going to grumble for 40 years. You could do it as as murmur. But it will reappear over and over and over again. And I want to do something that, I want to just tell you something about my personal sort of demeanor and sort of help you and then hope you help you to help yourself is that is that what i find is that when there is a situation where god is testing my faith and it hasn't quite worked out as god would as, as i think that god should work it out and that i i come home and i i do i i'll talk about it to myself or to anybody that will listen i will talk about it what the thing that I realize as I'm working this out with myself is that, is that what my actions are doing are robbing me of faith and blessing. And sometimes people have to say that to me. I've had people say uh, something similar to me this week. I'd sit in their front room and they said to me uh, certain things. And, and it's It's true. It's true that grumbling, murmuring, and that whole attitude robs you of faith and blessing. It stops you from being blessed. I, and these are some of the questions that I ask myself. Do you, Nigel, always see what is wrong? Yes. Me. Are you, Nigel, a glass, half-empty type of person? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Can you, Nigel, at times, just little bit, bit times, always focus on the negative? Yes. That's, that's me. Nigel, do you talk a little about these things? Or... <laughs> I daze Britannica Encyclopedia on things that go wrong. This is me. Do you know what happens when I'm like that? I cannot see what God is doing. Cannot see it. Sometimes God's doing huge things and I am not noticing what God is doing because I am do- now I'm not saying that I should ignore sin or error or wrong. I'm just saying that I know that I'm predisposed to be negative. Are you thinking at me? Blame me. This is the bloke that's leading the church. (laughs) But I'm just being honest with you. And the thing that I know is that this, for me, has to be one of my greatest battles because I know that I can't see God. What God's doing? It's robbing me from blessing. I don't see faith. I can't see what God's worth because I am just murmuring. I'm just groaning. So here's the question that I ask myself, that I will ask you: How do I know, Nigel, that you are in one of those type of moods? Here it comes. Well, answer, Nigel. Well, the red sea is just not enough for me. It just doesn't last. And I wonder whether your red sea is enough for you. I wonder whether your red seas last. Well, actually, what your Red Sea has become is just, well, well, that's in the past. And actually, Nigel, you need to think about this. In short, responding to difficulty is not easy unless we see it as our greatest friend in sanctification. Difficulty is my greatest friend. That's what I need to come to terms with. That's what the children of Israel... Need to come to terms. We need to move on quite quickly. I'll do this. God's response to the people's failure is extraordinary. Verse 25 to 27, we get a refreshing, surprising response to God's of God's grace. God's response was not what you would expect or what you would expect Moses to have done. I would have done something like this to the people. God is your judge. God is a king. God is reigning. God is ruling. He's almighty. You're rebelling. Get lost. I'll go on my own. He could have said, after three days I've had enough of you, which is what every pastor said. I'll just go on my own. Promised land for me, not for you. Stay here then, tough. That's basically that would have been my understanding of it all. But Moses does something that I find is quite admirable, and I want to ask you whether you do this or I do it in difficulty. Is that as soon as he sees there's a difficulty, he goes and he cries out to God. I cry out to Kelly. Moses cries out to God. How do you cope with your difficulty? What an example. It's interesting, it reminds me of Exodus uh, Exodus 2, where they did cry out. And God heard them, and now they've forgotten. And if we are going to achieve anything as a church, we must be a people who regularly cries out to God. We must be. We're not going to do it without it. It isn't a prayer meeting. It is a gathering to cry out to God. To cry out to, is it that bad, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I'll rewrite it and do it again next week. I'll get it better. Okay, <clears throat> but that's, the, you know, if we're going to grow the church, we've got to cry out to God. If we're going to plan a church, we've got to cry out to God. If we, we're going to do anything, we've got to cry out to God together. It isn't just a trumpet blow for a prayer meeting or another meeting or anything like that. We've got to cry out to God. Moses was right. The answer to difficulty, the answer to everything is to cry out to God. So Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord miraculously sweetens the water. It's supernatural. And that's what happens when we cry out to God. When we cry out to God, the supernatural comes amongst us. But I want you to indulge me in my final minutes. So I need you to just sit for a listen and listen just for a second longer. Because please indulge me. This is something that struck me. Doesn't it grab you when you read verse 25? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Or if you want to put it in another version. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. How do you answer the world's problems? How do you do that? And you answer your husband and your wife? You cry out to the Lord and ask the Lord that, to show them a tree. Cry out to them. You cry out and the Lord will show them a tree. Cry out and the Lord will show them a tree. What is the answer to a desert? What is the answer to no water? What is the answer to lostness, wandering around for three days and where are we going? What is the answer? A tree. A tree. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree tree that we might die to sin and live to righteous by his wounds we have been healed on what basis does he not treat us as our sins deserve on what basis does he not repay us according to our iniquities on the basis of a tree on the basis of a tree and what was achieved on the tree It was a tree that made this bitter guy sweet. It was a tree that made this bitter guy sweet. If you are not a Christian, it's the tree that makes the bitter sweet. If you are, look at the tree. It's the tree that makes the bitter sweet. God showed Moses a tree. And when you look at the tree, you see the man, Jesus And you can't help but fall in love with him when you look at him. You look at him and you utter words like, Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? What a counsellor. What a prince of peace. What a wonderful saviour. What a great king. What a lamb that would sacrifice himself for me. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What helps me with a desert, what helps me with no water, what helps me in, in the wilderness, what helps me with bitterness, it's him. I am like I am because I haven't been sanctified yet enough. So I need the man on the tree to come and work with me. You know, sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. If you're going through difficulty, look at the tree. Look at the tree. See what was achieved on the tree. That you undeservingly, you unrighteous, you unforgiving, received grace. And you look at the desert and you think, pa, desert, tree, desert, tree, desert, pa, tree. Come on. It is. Now, when was the last time you went, desert tree, desert tree? Actually, the tree is your saviour. That's the point. The tree is the saviour. What? Desert tree? Ah, oh, dry tree. Ah, oh, no, walking lost tree. That's the answer. You now, sometimes we think, "No, why no? Well, if Nigel just tweaks this, changes this, if we move the cell groups over this way, move the service, no, tree. Tree. Well, what about what about this problem at work? Tree. Put it into perspective. What about this problem with my husband? Or tree. Well, what about the financial crisis in that tree? It is a tree. Let me ask you the question: Has the Lord showed you? The tree. When was the last time that you stopped and found the tree and dwelt and looked at the tree? One last thing. It is just balmy that even with the attitude of the people of Israel, that the Lord shows them. Another oasis. They came to Elim, which means trees or terebinth trees. And apparently those trees have an incredible distinctive mark. Apparently, they say, you can go there today. There you go. It's up to you. After the service, you may go. The numbers of 12 and 70, some people argue, is symbolic. I'll give you my version of it. I don't want to spiritualize it. But for every spring, there's a tribe. And for every palm tree, there's a leader in Israel. What does that mean? It just means that there's, there's an oasis for us all. <laughs> it just simply means that. It just means that in the desert, you can experience an oasis. But God's grace is bigger than. And it is open to all and that he's over the top. So I want to ask you finally, I've gone on far, far too long, what your expectation of God is. I want to ask you whether your expectation is in line with him or in line with you. And I want to finally ask you, I want to ask you to, to join me and I want to ask you to look at the tree. Look at the tree. It will help you in your desert.